Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to John chapter two. If you see, if you see the first slide here, you see that we're a little ambitious this morning. We'll see how far we'll make it. <laughs> two, two and three. Whoa. Uh, there's only twenty something and thirty something verses, right? We've done seventy before. <laughs> I know it's not saying anything, but uh, I, I realize. Many, many moons ago, that I want to do my best to hear more, to hear more of the scriptures as we spend time together. So, and find ways for us to continue doing that as we, um, you know, when we're not, uh, when we're not gathered, um, to find ways to encourage each other to be in the Word more. It's through um, God's word that we uh, see him. And as we see him, we are being changed from glory to glory by the Holy Spirit. As uh, Paul reminds us in uh, his second Corinthians. All right, so let's do as we uh, as we do. Let's do what we do. We'll read um, read our text for today and we'll pray and we'll jump in. And um, we will meditate, we'll um, meander with the Lord. All right, Um, John 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, Both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they didn't stay there many days. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords... (laughs) I'm sorry. Verse 15, when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. 
Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. There there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Uh, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered, And said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man, who is in the heavens. <laughs> and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send, send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this, this is the condemnation, that men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil, everyone practicing evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth 
comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing in Enon near Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, uh, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Messiah, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent Before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Father, there are um, uh, several, I think, several sobering statements in this portion of the scriptures. Um, I pray that you give us wisdom and understanding this morning that you would build our faith and teach us to depend on you. Lord, I need you to speak through your word because my words are not sufficient. Thank you for being with us always. Would you bless your people? Would you speak to us through your word? And would you change us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys, back up with me to chapter 2, verse 1. This water-to-wine thing. Wow. <laughs> I have I spent many years um, asking questions about this, <laughs> this first uh, miracle here at the wedding in Cana. Um, uh, let's walk through it and... Um, and talk about it for a minute. Okay. Okay, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. So uh, John, as he's writing, puts this in reference to the baptism. When Jesus was baptized by John, you'll see he lists uh, several specific days. So now he's coming to the third day. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. Okay, That, that uh, puts it in its place in time in the story of Jesus and of his ministry. So... There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, so Mary was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to this wedding. When they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, 
they have no wine. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> um, this is one of those things that uh, I hope that nobody thinks I'm trying to disparage um, Mary here, but uh, she <laughs> she doesn't ask a question. She doesn't she doesn't ask him for anything. She just says, "Hey, there's no wine," and it's like. It's it's that passive sort of like I'm just letting you know this. I expect you to do something about it, but I'm just saying it <laughs> like without asking. You know, <laughs> they they have no wine. You know, um, I the reason why I, I mentioned that I I've spent a lot of time. I mean, really lo- a lot of reading uh, about this because it, it it's a confusing story to me. It's it's confusing because it's so simple and and yet i've heard like i've heard and read lots of things that that try to i feel like sometimes they try to make something out of it that just isn't really there you know um maybe sometimes the idea of like hyper spiritualizing the text a little bit um it's what's another thing that's fascinating to me is at the end of this story it says that he he did this he turned the water into wine and and he manifested his glory he revealed his glory by turning water to wine and the disciples believed him they believed in him because of this story i mean he turned water to wine that's all he did so they ran out of wine verse 3 says the mother of jesus said to him they have no wine much has been said about how this could be or would be a an incredible, incredibly humiliating thing for the family of, of those involved in the wedding. Um, we've tried to relate why Mary was there, why this would have been her concern. A lot of those things, I need you to understand that they're kind of, they're made up. Like we're we're trying to figure it out, right? So so we're trying to make connections that aren't explicitly written. Um, whatever the reason is. Mary brings the concern to Jesus, okay? Verse 4 says this. Jesus said to her, woman, the, the word here is, is gune. The, <laughs> I, used to, I used to call Kelly this sometimes <laughs> when we were younger in our marriage and I was foolish. Uh, <laughs> I used to say gune. Because... <laughs> right. uh, because I'm dumb, if you guys didn't learn that by now. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it's not its not meant to be a, like, woman, how dare you? It, it's just a, it, it's a, a, a normal term to just say, you know, lady or, or whatever. It, it's not a disparaging term, even though um, it sounds that way. This is one of the difficulties of translations, right, between languages and learning uh, colloquialisms, right? Like the way that we say certain things in our language uh, may be deemed offensive if it were said the same way in another language, you know, um, or or vice versa, you know. So uh, it's not an offensive type of thing. He's not he's not rebuking her necessarily by saying this. Um, but he does ask the question, what does your concern have to do with me? Um, my hour has not yet come. Now, this is after the baptism. 
is after he's baptized by John, he's recognized. This is really the very beginning of this time period that lasts about three and a half years that we, we refer to it as the, the ministry of Jesus, where he's going around doing the, the things that most of the Gospels actually tell us about. It's only about a three and a half year time period from when he's baptized by John to when Jesus is crucified. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but his response here is, um, is interesting. <laughs> What does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then her response, verse 5, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. What? <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know what. I mean, <laughs> sometimes we have ways of communicating in our close relationships that people outside of those relationships are confused by. And I feel like for me, I'm like watching this happen and I'm like, I don't, I'm kind of, I don't really, what's happening in this exchange here? Jesus is like, it's not, woman, it's not my time yet, you know, mom, my hour has not yet come. What does this concern really have to do with me? And I mean, they're just, they run out of wine, you know, and, uh, and then her response is, whatever he says to you, do it, you know. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, which, by the way, here's one of the things I love about this phrase. This is the last recorded words of Mary, like chrono chronologically, these are the last recorded words of Mary in the Bible. And I love that because that's, I mean, what better thing could she have said? Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. Like that's literally what it means to be his disciple. <laughs> you, you just follow him, you hear his voice, and you do whatever he commands. That's it. That's the top and the bottom. That's the whole, the whole shebang. <laughs> And I think that's really lovely. <laughs> I think that's wonderful that these are the last recorded words um, of, of Mary, or at least a direct quotation. So whatever he says to you, do it. So verse 6, the story continues. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now I want you to take a break there for a second where it says according to the manner of purification of the Jews probably means that these were the water pots they used for cleaning either the dishes or for cleaning their hands or for whatever whatever the purifications they needed to have according to their traditions remember jesus later on was criticized because he didn't wash his hands before eating uh, in the manner of the tradition of the elders where they took a certain amount of of water um and and had to pour it over their hands a certain way and hold their hands he, he didn't didn't follow those um traditions and he was criticized later for that so uh, these water pots um, had 20 or 30 gallons of water in them apiece. <clears throat> there were six of them. So Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. Verse 7 continues, and they filled them up to the brim. And these are the, these are the places where, because I've heard these, I've heard this taught many times, and I've heard lots of this stuff. I just feel like sometimes we, I don't know, of course I'm probably the one that's wrong, so that's fine. Um, where, where we take something as simple as that, where it's like, oh, they filled them up to the brim, where John is recording for us events that actually occurred, and then we hyper-spiritualize them, and we're like, if you really want to be filled with new wine, then you got to fill yourself up with the water of the word up to the brim, you know, and we like... Because preachers want to be clever, I think is usually what the real issue here is. Like we want people to think we're coming up with something clever and cool and new. 
Um, and it's not that that's wrong <laughs> per se, right? Like those are good. That's good. You sh- yes, yes. Fill yourself with the word of God, right? Yeah, absolutely, right? Like that's good. Yes, keep keep doing that, right? Um, but but there's there's a mechanicalness to that that I don't like. It's not there, there's um, it brings us back into that like if you do this, then this will happen sort of relationship with God. Sort of that Old Testamenty, if you do these things, you'll live thing, and that's not of grace. What if God could fill you up or give you new wine without you filling yourself with any water at all? Is He able to do that? <clears throat> what if He <laughs> flashes a bright light in your eyes as you're going to persecute his followers and blinds you for several days and says, "Hey, you're you're mine. What are you, what are you, what are you doing? Am I allowing God to be that sovereign in my own life and in the lives of those around me? That kind of authority, you know? And of course, I don't allow anything. Right? It's, not, it's not like he's limited by by that, right? Uh, but what I mean in the, by using that phrase is, am am I um, am I aware of that? You know, of that kind of sovereignty. Um, anyways, I, I only bring it up because. Um, I think maybe the story's just real simple, and I find some beauty in that that I, I think is healthy and good. So um, He said to fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. So they drew the water out. They took it to the master of the feast. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, this is such a fascinating thing to me because there's no like abracadabra. There's no like, he he doesn't, he just like fill those water. He says water pots for purification, just fill them up with water and then get some of it out and go take it to the master of the feast. And somehow gets to the master of the feast. And, and like John, as he's writing it, he's like, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, but like, that's the first time it's ever mentioned. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's just a, Oh, it just happened. <laughs> It's so matter of fact. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he didn't know where it came from. And I love this little uh, parenthetical statement that John adds, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, which we do find if you are involved in Christian service. Sometimes people are like, this this incredible thing happened, you know, and, and, and if you've been involved in serving, sometimes you, you see how the Lord works stuff behind the scenes and you're like, man, it's amazing the things that God did to for that thing to happen, you know. The servants who had drawn the water knew. The master uh, of the feast then called the bridegroom, verse 10 says, and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. Right? That's a reasonable thing to do, right? You're trying to please your guests. You put the good stuff out first. They, they've imbibed a bit, and their senses are a little dulled, right? And you give them, like, the gross, nasty stuff. And they're like, this is the best I've ever had, because they're already sloppy or whatever, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, but he notices that, that uh, something different has happened here. Every minute at the beginning sets out the good wine when the guests have well drunk. Then the inferior, you've kept the good wine until now. Um, a couple of things before we move on from the story um, into the, the, the sort of the summary of it, really, the last little um, section there. Um, 
this you've kept the good wine until now I mentioned that I, I don't, I think sometimes we try and make stuff up. Maybe I'm just making this up. It is interesting that Jesus uses this, the idea of uh, pouring new wine into new wineskins later on as he's talking about sort of the transition from the Old Testament, Old Covenant type of things into the, uh, into the New Testament, the New Covenant that he was making uh, with Israel. Um, it's interesting that he, he uses that sort of illustration later on in his ministry. Um, and maybe in a very visual sense, see that here. Most people put the good stuff out first, but you've saved the best for last. You know, you've kept the good wine until now. It's a very simple thing. He turned water into wine. And if that much has been said or debated about how such a thing could happen, what's the nature of miracles, that sort of thing. There's plenty of stuff written about it. If you want to read some books about it, that's fine. I, I think that if God can make everything out of nothing, I'm not really bothered by this. This beginning of signs, verse 11 says, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. All he did was turn water into wine. This beginning of signs. The story reminds me of, um, I mean, she, she's not here, so I can tell a story of uh, Kelly's grandma. Uh, I know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I love her, and I love the way that she trusts her relationship with the Lord in very small things sometimes where she's like, I have a hard time walking a long distance to the store. And so I need a closer place to park. Right. And I know that's it. Oh, well, does God care about those little things or whatever? You know, I mean, Jesus turned water into wine for whatever the thing was related to this. I mean, is that some huge, was he saving somebody's life or was he, he raising the dead? Was he, I mean, that stuff we see later on, the first miracle is just at a wedding, changing water to wine because they ran out of wine. And I think um, maybe there are things, Lord, that I can ask you for, even if if I think they're a little silly. <laughs> and I can trust you to care for me and to care about me. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. Do you, manifested means revealed, made known. To manifest something means to reveal it or to make it known. How did he manifest his glory? <laughs> he turned water into wine at a wedding. He manifested his glory. What? It is fascinating to me that in some of our modern things, our, sometimes I'm trying to be very cautious with my words. In the way that we as the church sometimes try to hype up ministry and church and what it means to be a Christian. 
in a lot of ways we do it to the detriment of people because we we make it look like something it's not um but um i've seen lots of lots of things over the years where people hype up miracle ministries and things like that and it's like healings and and raising the dead and you know all of these big things you know and um it's funny that the first miracle Jesus does is turn water into wine. And in doing so, he reveals his glory. And it says his disciples believed in him. And I think, what signs do I need to see to trust you, Lord? <laughs> do I need to see someone raised from the dead? Sometimes people feel like that, right? Just show me a sign, you know. Well, I mean, you're still alive. That should... <laughs> <laughs> or I dare say you're alive at all. Any, the fact that anything is alive. Anyways, we could go all the way down the line with that, but um, <laughs> it's all miraculous. In a lot of ways, as we get older, I feel like we lose the wonder of that reality, that everything is indeed a miracle, that anything exists, that anything happens. Well, um, in doing this miracle, it says he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So after this, he went down to Capernaum. He's going to um, essentially or eventually make that the center of his uh, ministry uh, for a while. After this, he went down to Capernaum um, near the Sea of Galilee. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. Interesting that uh, John mentions that his family is with him at this point his mother and his brothers. Um, Bible never tells us what, what happens to Joseph. Um, so we, we don't know. Uh, though, again, much has been speculated. But um, And his disciples went, and they did not stay there many days. So they weren't there a long time, and then Passover comes. So verse 13, Now the Passover of the Jews, Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay, so this is the first Passover. If you guys remember, uh, we just finished Luke's gospel. You remember when Jesus was crucified was also what? Passover, right? So this was the one uh, several years before. Okay, Passover of the Jews is at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Now, um, you'll also recall, maybe, that Jesus does this during the last week of his life before he's crucified. He does the same thing. He goes and does the same thing in the temple. He overturns the money changers' tables and, and does the whole deal. This is a separate event. This is the beginning of his public ministry. He goes and he does the same thing. Okay. Um, one of the things I love about this one is that it says this in verse 15. I mean, Jesus is tough, y'all. Like... Verse 15, when he had made a whip of cords, when he had made a whip of cords, how long did that take? Where did, did he, he just like went out and was like, I'm just going to make this cord right here. I saw what they were doing in the temple. I mean, what? This is uh, this is a, a real person. I, I know that we, we have this disconnect between a little bit between who Jesus is and, and the reality of, of of his personhood that he is he is all he's fully God. He's also fully a man. And this thing that um, 
theologians call the hypostatic union. <clears throat> so he makes this whip of cords. <laughs> Verse 15, when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changer's money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And I hope that we as a group, as a community of followers of Jesus, that we can take that instruction to heart. (laughs) Because sometimes people see the church as a place of merchandise. It's just selling goods, just another business. And I pray that we would that God would help us to be freed from that, free from that kind of um, um, thing. Right? That we wouldn't become that kind of place. But instead, that we would be a house of prayer, as Jesus would say later on. Then his disciples, verse 17, remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. I love that. So often um, when things are quoted about the Messiah, they're quoted from the Psalms. (laughs) Jesus is the son of David uh, in all that that uh, loaded term means. David wrote many of the Psalms. It is interesting to see that so many of the Psalms are themselves prophetic about things that would happen to and through and even things Jesus would say uh, written in the Psalms by uh, King David. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? Obviously, if you're going into the temple in Israel at Passover and you go with a whip of cords and you drive out all the people selling all the stuff and, and all of that, and, and you, you say, um, don't make my father's house a house of merchandise, the question from those in authority is going to be, now, who gave you that authority? to do that, right? That's essentially what they're asking here. Like, who told you, bro, that you could be here doing this, right? Uh, And that's a question they would ask Jesus again later on, the same type of thing. What sign do you show to us since you do these things? If you're this itinerant rabbi and you're you're coming and doing this stuff, then what, what sign will you show us to show us the authority that you have to do this? So Jesus answered and said, verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And this clearly went way over their heads, right? Their response shows that, that they had no idea about uh, uh, to what he was referring. Verse 20, the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? It's fascinating that this is one of the things that when he is arrested later on, that they bring up in his uh, trials, in his sort of mock trials and other things uh, in order to try to accuse him. Um, of being a rabble rouser. So um, the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. This is uh, John explaining to us, as John's writing, explaining to us what Jesus meant by saying that. Therefore, uh, when he had risen from the dead, verse 22, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Stop right there for a second. They believed what now? They believed the writing. The writing about what? About Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that had been written in the prophets and in the law. 
They believed the writings and uh, they believed that which Jesus said. What did he say? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But he wasn't talking about that physical temple. He was talking about the temple of his body, that temple. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, verse 23, at Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all Men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. End of chapter 2 is a sobering statement. Many people, it says, believed in, in him. They believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did, but he didn't commit himself to any of them. Because he knew it was really deep inside them. He knew it was what was really there. Many people see certain things and they interpret those things as signs and they believe something because of a sign that they saw. But sometimes there's not real trust there in the Lord. And, and God knows. He knows when we're faking and when we're not he knew what was in man. He, he had no need that anyone should testify of men. He, he knows what's in him. Now, chapter 3. Speaking of knowing what is in man. This is one of my favorite passages. The beginning here. As it has been aptly nicknamed, this is the Nick at Night passage. Right? Because this is Nicodemus coming at night. <laughs> Uh, it, Nick at night's probably not even a thing anymore, is it? Like okay. it's only it's only us like '80s and '90s kids. <laughs> Anyways, uh, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now that itself is a is a I think. A very humble way for Nicodemus to be approaching Jesus. Much of the things that the Pharisees were doing when they sent delegations to come and question Jesus, they were just trying to catch him or trying to accuse him. But Nicodemus comes and probably at night in order to keep himself, you know, sort of away from everybody else and sort of secretly he comes. And, uh, and he says, we know that you're a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, verse 3, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And if you have footnotes in your Bible, you'll notice that the word again, if you can, I have this digital Bible, but my print Bible also, um, no, it actually doesn't have it. My digital Bible does have it. So the, that uh, word there again uh, is, uh, is a, w- a word that can be translated from above. Okay, so um, you're born from above, born again. So um, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's a pretty sweeping statement, I think. You must be born from above. You must be born again, another time, to even see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, Again, another episode of clearly missing missing the understanding here of something going over someone's head. 
but I think with Nicodemus, what we see is that he's trying to understand, and Jesus um, Jesus meets him there and explains further uh, what what he means. He explains further what his intent here is. Nicodemus said to him, "How can a man be born when he is old?" Uh, Nicodemus is probably an old guy, <laughs> and he's like, "I'm going to be born. I'm going to be born a second time." Like you said, I would be born from above, but like I've already been born. So like, what? How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And like all the moms are like, no, we don't want our children after they're grown to be entering and being born another time. Right? <laughs> all the moms are horrified by that idea. Right? <laughs> or even like even like a month later, right? Like, no, no, that's too big. Too big. Right? Most of, uh, sorry. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. There has been some debate as to what he means when he says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he can't see the kingdom. Um, I don't, let me explain to you why I don't think there, I don't think we need to have a whole lot of issue with it. I take it pretty simply. You can disagree with me and be wrong if you want. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I'm a smart aleck. I'm, I very well could be the one who's wrong. Um, but here's what I mean. Um, in all of the things that, that are being said here, there's a comparison between two births, a natural birth and a spiritual birth. So I think when he's saying being born of water, uh, you guys know that birth involves uh, right, water breaking is the what phrase that we use, right? Um, we know it's not just water, but um, the amniotic fluid, right, is the idea there. So um, I think that that's probably just a reference to natural birth, unless you are born once and then a second time, born both of water and of the spirit. And the reason why I bring that up is that there, this is one of the passages where some groups that say you aren't saved unless you are what? What else involves water in the church, right? Unless you are water baptized. This is one of those phrases that sometimes people use to say, well, this is Jesus saying you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Sorry, guy hanging on the cross next to Jesus. I guess Jesus was wrong about seeing him in paradise. Um, but uh, anyway, so this is one of those places where people try to justify that uh, teaching. It's just not something that is clearly taught as we go through the scriptures. In fact, later on, we see Paul writing to the Corinthian church. and He's like, listen, I didn't come to baptize you guys. <laughs> I was sent to preach the gospel to you. And I thank God that I didn't baptize most of you. I, maybe I baptized a couple of you. Fine, whatever. But but who cares? God knows. You know, <laughs> like Paul's so like... Uh, and I hate to even use the word, but he's almost flippant about it, where he's like, it, that isn't, you're saved by grace through faith, you guys, not through that act of baptism. That is not what, what rescues you from your sin, you know. Um, so, um, anyways, that's the reason why I bring it up, because uh, I think that there's a simpler way to view it just as those two births, because that's what's being spoken of repeatedly in this section. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's the first birth. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's the second birth, being born from above, being born of the spirit of God, God giving you life by his spirit. Okay. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. 
Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Stop right there. I wonder if this is this whole thing about the spirit blowing where it wishes and you not you're not knowing but you hear the sound of it you can't tell where it comes from or where it, where it goes so is everyone who's born of the spirit this whole thing about being born again being born of the spirit you know what it reminds me of Ezekiel's dry bones the promise that God was going to give new life to Israel oh but but that also is extended beyond Israel right but do you realize that that is an incredible picture of a new birth, of a new life, and involves the, this, this idea of, of the wind blowing, of the Spirit of God coming and giving life to those dry bones, and the bones standing up and then being covered with, with all the flesh and sinews, and then being covered with skin again, and all of that. Like That, that story, that prophecy in Ezekiel, I think is, is fascinating and wonderful. And I think maybe that's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here. Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know this? Like, this is something the prophets have have said. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So, um, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Verse 11, most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe... How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That is the son of man who is in heaven. Some of these are very difficult phrases. <laughs> uh, you'll also notice that uh, some of you might notice if you have a, a, some, a different translation that some of the manuscripts don't include that last phrase, who is in heaven. There are some manuscripts that don't include that. Uh, the majority of them uh, do, but, uh, but, but there's a certain group of, of them that don't. So uh, the Son of Man uh, who is in heaven. Um, but there's this, uh, this idea, this reality of the, the, uh, how, how God is always everywhere, and then he's also imminent. He's there in the person of Jesus, present with them, right? So both of those things are real. Both of them are true. So... Um, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. If you want to look the story up, um, I encourage you to read through it. It's in Numbers 21, uh, right around that area. Uh, a plague of serpents sent to Israel because of their rebellion to God. Anyone bit by a serpent died by these fiery serpents, right? And so um, God, Moses pleads with God for a remedy to this plague because of their rebellion. And the remedy is that Moses makes a bronze staff and he puts on it a bronze serpent. He hangs it up there, this brass serpent. Hangs it up there, and he says, anyone who looks looks at this, if they've been bitten by the fiery serpents, they won't die. Anyone who looks to this, right? Amazing thing is, lots of people still died. Because <laughs> I don't know if they just were like, oh, that's so stupid. How in the world? That's, that's not going to save me from this fiery serpent bite, right? 
Of course, the same thing happens now about the gospel. The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, right? To say that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried and has been raised from the dead, is crazy talk (laughs) to those who won't believe. And there are many who look at that, or rather don't look at it, (laughs) because they say, that won't save me. And the same was true there. And Jesus uses, Jesus uses this, um, this story from Numbers 21 um, uh, to remind us also of himself. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Uh, before we move to the next section, which is a very familiar one for most of us, the next few verses there. Um, I do, we use that phrase, we've got to lift Jesus up. You know what I mean? Like we use it. We got to lift Jesus up. Um, <laughs> uh, because he'll draw, you know, he'll draw all men to himself. Um, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. But what's Jesus talking about when he says the Son of Man must be lifted up? He's not talking about our Christianese phrase of lifting up God by singing songs to him. Nope. He's talking about the cross. Unless he is hung on a pole, just like that bronze serpent was hung on a pole. That is how he rescues us. The cross, by his death. That's what he's referring to here. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For... God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. (laughs) I just find myself saying, do you believe that? Do I believe this? There's no difficulty that needs to be explained here. There's no theological quandary. There's just, do I believe this is true? That God loved the world. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. (sighs) The more I read the New Testament, in fact, the more time I spend reading the New Testament, the more convinced I become that one of the primary central themes of the early church is the issue of resurrection. First of Jesus' resurrection, but of his resurrection being both the promise for our resurrection and the means by which we are saved and resurrected. That church suffered greatly. Many of them died. They were persecuted mightily. And I'm afraid that, I, I fear that sometimes I'm afraid that sometimes we make other things like like our focus shifts away from that into well, we're, we're going to be around a long time, you know. Well, why? Why do we shift our focus around well as as the church? Well, we've we're going to be around. We've got to we've got to do all of these things, right? Well, I mean, we're not a persecuted church, so maybe we maybe we are going to be around longer than they were around. But but that that's not 
we don't know how long any of us is going to be here for any particular thing, for any particular time. And, I, and I'm, I'm getting, I don't know if I'm just getting crotchy or crotchety or because I'm older, not crotchier. <laughs> I don't know what that is. <clears throat> Crotchetier. <laughs> I'll try not to say crotchier again. <laughs> I don't know. I uh, <clears throat> everyone I know is dying. But Jesus has overcome. And the message of the good news of Jesus is the Messiah died for our sins and was buried and has been raised from the dead. And that he's the first fruits. And he's promised to raise us into an everlasting kingdom where there is no end. And there is only righteousness. And, and for all of our struggles and all of our trying to make that kingdom here, it's been 2,000 years. How well have we done? Because what we need is the king. He's got to do it. And he's promised to. That doesn't mean that, please don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that we should not be doing good works. God has rescued us for good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, right? Absolutely, we ought to be. (laughs) But we must never lose the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because for all of our feeding and helping and serving and doing good things for the world and the community around us, if they don't know that Jesus raises the dead and if they haven't trusted him, then they are perishing. They are perishing. And I don't want to, at at that day when I stand before the Lord, for for him to say, why didn't you tell them (laughs) that I raised the dead? (laughs) Yes, you should have given them food. I'm glad you did. (laughs) But faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. The word with which we preach, the word of faith is near you. That if you, if you believe in your heart that, that God raised him from the dead and you've confessed with your mouth, then you will be saved. <laughs> God so loved the world. Verse 17 continues this, these thoughts and says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I think one of the reasons why John makes it clear that Jesus wasn't sent uh, in his first coming to condemn the world is because, as he's about to say, the world's already condemned. We're already cursed, right? We're on a plane that's crashing. (laughs) He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light 
because their deeds were evil. And this is very reminiscent of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 regarding um, God's judgment of the world, that he gives, he gives us over to our sin. Verse 20, for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. These um, things, these themes are themes that John uses in much of his writing, the themes of uh, light and darkness and of good and evil and in, in reflective in those terms and those senses and those ideas. The world is condemned already. Jesus has come to rescue those who are already condemned. To save us. And as Paul points out in his letter to the Corinthian church, one of his letters to the Corinthian church, he said, God has chosen through the foolishness of preaching now that, to, to save some. Now, I want to back up when I say that phrase, because when I hear the phrase, and I, this is what I thought for years, when I hear the phrase preaching, it, it means a certain thing in our American colloquialism. But the word just means announcing something. It means bringing some, some new information, bringing new news, right? That's all it means to preach. It means to make an announcement about something, to share something with somebody. So the reason why I bring that up is because I want, I want for us to be reminded of the fact that this Preaching isn't, isn't about just like what people think I'm doing here this morning. I consider myself very much to be more of a teacher. Um, but I love opportunities when I get to preach, when I get to announce great news. I love those opportunities as they come. It's what I was trying to do yesterday. Um, <clears throat> I've had chances because of the things that have happened recently to share some with some of my coworkers, you know, and to talk to them about the hope that I have to, to say, I'm sad, but, but I know that I'll see him again and, and to talk to them about Jesus, you know, and I realize that it, those are, those are vital opportunities that I get. Um, and, and I don't want to waste them. Uh, opportunities to preach, <laughs> to announce the good news. I believe Jesus raises the dead. I just believe him. He's alive. <laughs> He's alive, guys. <laughs> uh, last, The last couple of things here. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Uh, it's going to be pointed out uh, that Jesus himself didn't baptize, but that, that his disciples were the ones actually baptizing people. But it's irrelevant. The idea is that their group went and they were baptizing people. Now, John also was baptizing in Enon near Salem, um, or Shalim, uh, because there was much water there. It's a good reason to go there to be to baptize people, right? It's so practical. <laughs> like, <laughs> why were they why were they in that location? John's like, because there was a lot of water there. <laughs> like, it's, it just makes sense, right? Um, and they came and were baptized. Uh, for John had not yet been thrown into prison, so. Uh, um, Lots of people came and were baptized there as well. Um, verse 25, then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. Now, this is specifically related to the idea of baptism. 
baptism was something that was sort of culturally related to the Jews in that um, the priests and those serving in and around the temple, they had this giant laver, this giant tub of water where they would be baptized in the sense that they would be washed as part of their ceremonial cleansing. And that's where the idea of baptism seems to come from, that, that idea. Okay, So then... Um, this question of purification is itself related to baptism, right? Um, that's what's being asked here. They came to John, verse 26, and said to him, Rabbi, or teacher, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. And you hear in that sort of this like, kind of envious, sort of like, and all are coming to him, right? This is John's disciples talking to their teacher, John, and they're like, you remember the guy that you baptized and you said he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? That guy, you remember him? Well, he's baptizing, or his group is baptizing now, and everybody's going out to them to be baptized, you know? So they're asking John about it, and now John, I love the wisdom of John and the humility here. This is something um, I think we all ought to take to heart. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. This is why I should stop criticizing um, (laughs) other pastors. (laughs) A man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent before him or in front of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. It's the groom who has his bride, but the friend of the bridegroom, now John's referring to himself, right? If Jesus is the bridegroom or the groom, and he has the bride, his bride, which we have come to know as the church uh, later on in, in, a, in our um, theology, um, the friend of the bridegroom, John now sort of speaking of himself in that um, context, who stands and hears him, he rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. John's like, this is wonderful. This is exciting that Jesus, that all of this is happening around Jesus. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. I love this. John the Baptist is happy because of the quote-unquote success that he sees in Jesus and his disciples' ministry. I think that's really healthy and good. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I decrease. May that always be my heart in ministry and yours. That as you're serving people in the name of Jesus, that it would not be that your name would become great but that it would be that his name would become great. It's been said, and I don't remember the exact quote, maybe it's Spurgeon. Spurgeon says everything, so. (laughs) Uh, uh, Two preachers, he had a lot to say, two preachers. He he trained up many, um, many um, preachers, but uh, he said, preach... uh, not so that they will say he is a great preacher, um, but so that they will say something along the lines of um, uh, that he has a great God. What if nobody ever remembers your name, that you said something to them about Jesus? What if nobody cares? What if people come here and they're here for a few weeks and they hear the good news of Jesus and they're rescued from their sin and they never come back and they never praise you or us? Is that okay? I want it to be okay. 
he must increase, but I decrease. And this is true of John's ministry. He had a very prominent ministry as he was serving, but he's going sort of off the scene now because he was the forerunner. He was a voice in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. I want to be a voice in the wild saying, prepare the way of the Lord. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly, John or John continues to write. He who comes from above is above all. That's Jesus, of course. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. <laughs> That's us. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. Remember earlier on in John's gospel, in John chapter 1, John said that he came to his own and what? His own people did not receive him, right? That same phrase, like Jesus was sent as the Messiah of Israel. And while all of the first believers were themselves primarily Jews, it was a very small number of the nation of Israel, right? Um, <clears throat> and what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. Verse 33, he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. This is what happens when we believe Jesus and what he has said and what he has taught us. We are saying then that God is true. 4, verse 34, He whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. Or the idea there is God doesn't give the Spirit in little parts. He doesn't give like just like, here's just a little part of the Spirit. He just gives his Spirit when he gives his Spirit. <laughs> it's that, that uh, reality. Um Interesting thing about that idea of God giving his spirit. Um, there's a particular promise that belongs to us as the church of Jesus. After Jesus was crucified and, and raised from the dead, uh, he tells the disciples to wait in Jerusalem till they are in, endued with power from on high and the Holy Spirit is given to them in Acts chapter 2 in a very particular way. And Jesus says uh, to them, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And he is um, in the person of his spirit. Um, with all of those who've trusted him. And it's that promise, the giving of the Spirit and the coming of the Spirit that then allowed the Jewish believers to accept the Samaritan believers and then later on to accept the Gentile believers because they said if God gave them the same promise he gave us, which is the Holy Spirit with them, in them, then uh, how could we reject them? How could we refuse them if God has accepted them, right? Um, so that, though, is something different than what the Old Testament um, people experience. If you read the story of King Saul, who was anointed with God's spirit, uh, there were times when God would take his spirit away from Saul. And, and I think that when David writes later on in one of his Psalms, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, as we sing that song sometimes. Uh, now for you and I, as part of the new covenant, we're assured that he doesn't take his spirit from us. Uh, the spirit is the down payment, the promise that we belong to him and he is with us always. But, um, uh, I think that David writes that because David like saw what happened with King Saul <laughs> and he saw the, he saw the spirit taken away from King Saul. Right. And, and then not only was God's spirit taken away from King Saul, even though he was the King, then God allowed this distressing spirit to plague Saul at times. And it was David who was called on to do what David would go and he would play music in order to soothe this distressing spirit that, that was sent to, to sort of plague King Saul later on in his life. So very interesting things. But David uh, wrote about that. And I think that's probably some of the context of what David was talking about or thinking about when, when he's writing that psalm. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. You know, 
Um, I think it's a very interesting thing, but uh, we we have the um, blessing, the privilege of being part of this new covenant that God has made uh, with us, where He gives uh, He gives us His Spirit as the uh, the down payment, the the um, promise of what will be fulfilled in its totality later on. So uh, He doesn't give the Spirit by measure. Jesus said, verse thirty five. Or, or John writes, verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. In case anyone was confused about Jesus' authority. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God's, God abides on him. You really can't make it any more any simpler than that. When people come to me and they say, well, the Bible doesn't teach, the Bible's not so exclusive or whatever, then I just... You obviously haven't read John chapter 3. It's just very particular. (laughs) So then what does that mean? Firstly, I hope it means you believe the good news, (laughs) right? (laughs) Believe in him. You might have eternal life. Uh, But then also, how ought we then be considering the people around us? If... He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. What then ought to our contact with the world around us be? Um, I'll let you just wrestle with that, because I don't have an answer for you. God's the one who's leading you. Uh, (laughs) You followed Jesus. That's what I want you to do. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I, I want you to read ahead next week, John 4. For me, please. We'll just look at chapter 4 next week um, and uh, some of that uh, part of the story. So also review the last couple of chapters that uh, we went through. If you have any questions or anything, email me, text me, or whatever. I'd love to answer, respond to some of that stuff if you have any thoughts about it or if you just want to correct me because I'm wrong. I um, understand. <laughs> um, and, and I encourage that. So, um Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for your patient love for us. Um, Lord, as we continue on, I pray that you'd help us to have an an eye toward eternity. And of what that looks like both for us and for our communities. I think many of our anxieties might be settled when we realize how small they are. At the end at the end when I'm the one in the casket, most of what I'm worried about today won't matter. if not all of it. And I I pray that you would help me um, to be more considerate of others. To be thinking about them more. About my wife and my children, my friends, about this community here about our, our broader community, all the people that we're able to um, have an influence in their lives by uh, the time that we get to spend with them. 
I don't say any of these things that anyone here would feel um, condemned or put down. I, I hope that we're challenged. I hope that we are encouraged that you've already accepted us and that you love us. And we want others to know this, this complete, this full, glorious acceptance, to know that we have access to you by grace through faith. that you've made us to be your children. Lord, I want to spend more time in your word because I, I want to be focused on the things that you are focused on and less focused on the things that um, the, the world around me that doesn't know you is focused on. And sometimes that's hard for me. So God, we pray for your help. We ask for wisdom. Lord, would you keep working in us, I pray. Please, please do what only you can. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Thank you, guys. Um, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious with you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace, you guys. And I can't say, we can't say enough to every one of you how grateful we are for this community that helped us so, so much and has been helping us over the past uh, couple weeks here. And yesterday, you guys did so much. And um, I'm going to cry again.